continuing along in a, a series and study looking at the letter of Philippians. And so if you are able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 12 to verse 18. This is God's Word. I pray that your hearts and minds would be, be open here this morning, starting with verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, should, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. Well, this passage in uh, Philippians 2, starting verse 12 to 18, it finishes a section that the Apostle Paul began back in chapter 1, verse 27. And in that verse there, Paul commands the church and you and I to let your manner of life be worthy of Jesus. And that's sort of an all-encompassing, broad encouragement to say, let the manner, the flavor, the seasoning of your life be worthy of Jesus. And then he begins to flesh that out by going through lofty theology and very nitty-gritty practical application. But he concludes that one command in 127 with a passage that I've just read. He centers and grounds everything that he said on really verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2. So that means that when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, and then he explains with lofty, brilliant heavenly language that's supposed to take our breath away, and he shows us what the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus is in verses 5 to 11. And then he wants us and invites us to think about that. The Son of God from eternity loved you and I so much, he comes into this world to take on human flesh, and he dies on the cross, and he's resurrected three days later. That's his exaltation and he enters into the kingdom of God and sits at the right hand of his Father. And Paul is saying, think about that truth, this heavenly, universal, glorious truth. In fact, one commentator by the name of Kent Hughes, he says about this, the downward compression of Christ's self-humiliation, followed by the explosive upward vault of his super-exaltation, demands our odd contemplation. And that's what... Paul is inviting us to do, before we get into looking at how we can grow in Jesus, he invites us to odd contemplation, to think about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. Another commentator, a pastor by the name of Mark Jones, he brings this out a little bit, and he says, can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to enter into heaven? Comes and dies on the cross, resurrects, and then he ascends into heaven. Can you imagine, or ever thought about, what does that look like? Because the Bible tells us that when one sinner repents, heaven rejoices from one sinner repenting. But when you have Jesus, who's the Savior of sinners and united all things in heaven and earth, and then he enters in heaven to take this right seat at the 
right hand of God the Father, what does that do? What, what kind of celebration would have that been? The God the Father, what was his heart to see that his, his heart celebrates in one sin and repents, but when the Son comes back to save sinners and enters into heaven, how joyous and how thankful, how much love did God the Father have to see his very own Son in the flesh, post-redemption, come into the heavenly place? Now, John Flavel says this, the Father received him with open arms, rejoicing exceedingly to see him again in heaven. Therefore, God is said to receive him up into glory. I mean, parents can get a sense of this. When, you're, when your son or daughter goes away to college and comes back for Thanksgiving or spring break or summer, how excited are you to see your kid come back? And that's just coming from higher education. Imagine God the Father with a perfect love, seeing his son come back from the depths of hell. That's, how, that's what the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus is. And Paul wants us to think about that, to let us soak into our hearts and our thoughts, let it saturate our thinking. He wants, he's basically saying, can you see that? Do you believe in it? Do you, do you relish in it? Do you soak yourself in it? Can you, can you really live your life in accordance and consistent with that truth, that wonderful truth? Because if you can then the passage I've just read tells you what to do. He says, if you really believe in that, verse 12, therefore, work out your salvation so that this glorious truth of Jesus going into heaven can be worked out in your lives down here on earth. Therefore, work out your salvation. Work it out. You know, put effort in. Because the person who believes, verses 5 to 11, will show it in the way they work out in verses 12 to 8, 18. Now, I know a lot of people in this church work out because I've heard that people like going to the gym, they go to Orange Theory, you want to exert effort, maybe you do push-ups at home. I've been hearing especially that there's some youth group boys that have been really working out, and they take their shirts off, they look at each other in the mirror, they just love to see how sculpted and how beautiful and handsome they are in the mirror. And I'm here to tell everyone, that's absolutely wonderful, but if you spend half the amount of the time working out your salvation as much as you do working out in the gym, your life will generally begin to fly. And that's what Paul's going to do. So I have two simple points. One, I'm going to define and paint a picture. What does it mean to work out your salvation? How do you go to Orange Theory? How do you go to the gym? How do you go to 24-hour fitness when it comes to your spiritual life? And then secondly, we're going to give one practical and specific application of that because that's what Paul gives us. So what is working out your salvation? What does it mean? Secondly, one specific application of it. So let's look at this. What does it mean to work out your salvation? And here we're looking at verses 12 to 13, and Paul starts off with therefore. And I mentioned that. He says, therefore, you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, notice the first thing, because it gets a bit theological. Paul is not saying work, he's not saying work for your salvation. You're not earning anything. He's saying work it out. It's already there, the power, the gift, the grace. Your salvation, your acceptance before God is given to you. So he's not saying work for your salvation. He's not saying, he's saying work it out. 
He's saying sort of farm it out. It's a little bit of an agricultural metaphor here. Work it out. Bring out the fruit. Grow it in your life. It's already been there. He's not talking about, in other words, initial salvation when you first became a Christian. He's talking about ongoing transformation. Now, if you've been with our church, we covered this in membership class. When we're talking about initial acceptance, we're talking about the doctrine of justification or adoption. A once-for-all grace in which God declares over you, you are mine. You are clean and innocent. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a once-for-all declaration. He's talking about an ongoing transformation, something that goes in you, inside of you, a slowly, stage-by-stage, progressive walk in which day-by-day, by God's grace, you're being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus. How do you grow to be godly is basically what he's trying to tell us. Because when we talk about justification, we're talking about God's once for all, 100% accepting of us. But when we're talking about sanctification, verses 12 to 13, we're talking about God changing us day by day. And in this passage, Paul is not talking about how we're accepted. He's talking about how we are changed. That's the doctrine of sanctification. We're changed by God as we work out the truth of verses 5 to 11 in our everyday lives, in every point, in every thought, in every emotion, in every aspiration. Cultivate in your heart. You work it out. Your love, your devotion, your priorities, how you think about money, your careers, your parenting, your marriage, your words out of your mouth, your time. Everything's supposed to be cultivated so that everything about you reflects the truth of verses 5 to 11. Because here in verses 5 to 11, we're reminded that the gospel tells us we become more mature Christians when we focus more on what God has done for us rather than what we do for God. Because to focus on how I'm doing more than what Christ has done for us is what they call Christian narcissism. It's It's not that we neglect what we do or don't do, but the primary thrust of the Christian life is to begin with what Jesus has done and begin to work that out in your life. And one of the implications of that is to always remember that the gospel is and forever will be essential to your salvation and Christian life. We never go beyond the gospel. We never leave the gospel. We begin with the gospel. We rely on the gospel. We end on the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. It's not as if we enter the kingdom of God by God's grace and then we progress in the kingdom by our own effort and works. We enter the kingdom, but then we also progress in the kingdom all by Jesus' love and his work for you. So here's the point. How do we make this a little bit practical? Especially if you're a Reformed Christian, which I pray that all of us would be, what you have to recognize is that grace, unmerited favor, grace is not opposed to effort. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think because everything's so gracious and God's so sovereign that it's almost we take this mantra, let God and let go. But no, grace is not opposed to work or effort. It's not antithetical to one another. It's not opposing one another. They actually coincide and they work together. It actually empowers effort, actually motivates effort. Those who fully grasp really the grace and the power of Jesus oftentimes are the hardest working people. And that's because of verse 13. Work out your salvation because verse 13 says, 
for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So the reason we could work out our salvation so that our lives look more like Jesus is because God is working in you. He's working in you so that you can work this out. And when you're talking about working this out, what he's basically saying is that he's talking about bring out the fruit of Christian life in your, in your everyday walk. Work out the salvation means that may your actions, your thoughts, your external behavior be consistent with your internal beliefs. Because no one can really tell what you believe inside. I don't know if you really believe verses 5 to 11 about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. I don't really know. Unless you work it out and your lives begin to reflect and to glow and to shine and to reflect the truths of verses 5 to 11. So Paul is basically saying work that out day by day. Be thorough. Be consistent. He says put your belief to the test. You just don't want to talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk. Because God is the one who works in you so that the fruit and the actions of your lives could be consistent with your beliefs. That's what he's saying. And this is one way to kind of break it down. Now, how do you exactly work that out? I mean, there's so many ways. One way is simply come consistently to Sunday worship. This is our primary way to work out your salvation by the proclamation of the gospel. On a practical level, read your Bible. Let the word of God soak your lives, repent of your sins, spend time talking to Jesus in prayer, serve the church. Those are the most basic ways that you could work out your salvation. If you want to get really specific, you'll recognize that one of our four core values at this church is that we believe in a counseling community. We want to counsel each other in community according to our partner, CCEF. And at the end of the day, what that really means is this. CCEF is basically taking a biblical gospel worldview a biblical gospel lens, and wants and encourages and empowers and motivates you to live out of that gospel lens. That means you understand yourself better. You understand how you interpret the world better. You understand your sins better. You understand the goodness of God in you better. You understand work and relationships to progress the salvation of your life. CCEF basically brings the heavenly theology down to the street level. And that's why it's one of our core values, because when you're working out your salvation in the everyday nitty-gritty, is basically applying the gospel in a meaningful, powerful way to the everyday matters of your lives, the everyday decisions, because Jesus is certainly Lord of all. That's what it means to work it out. And this is what it means before we get to our second point, so that you don't think about it in these terms. What it doesn't mean is this. It's not as if it's actually a partnership where 99% is God and 1% is you. Because that means we earned a little bit, we, we merit something. It does, it's not 50-50, it's, it's not 99% God, 1% you. It's not like a three-legged race where you and God are tied together and you're doing this journey together in this synergistic sort of way. It's rather this sort of, I know it doesn't make sense, it's a divine mathematical equation that works like this, where it's 100% God plus 100% your effort equals 100% of your salvation. Does that make sense? You don't merit anything. You don't earn anything. God changes your desires. He changes the controlling influence of your life, new aspirations, new eyes, a new way to view life, so that in your salvation, it's 100% God, which motivates, calibrates, saturates, encourages 100% of your grace-based effort, which equals 100% of your salvation, of your sanctification. 
of your progressive walk with God. That's the mysterious God equation. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you and fully engages all your thoughts and abilities and your efforts. But this working in you is completely grace-based and a result of the gospel for you. So friends, it's a simple application. If grace is not opposed to effort, the simple question is this, how much are you working out in your salvation? How much are you reading, praying, thinking, repenting, really looking at your life? How are you thinking about applying the gospel to your work and to your children, your marriage, your education, your goals and life aspirations? Are you working this out in the everyday nitty-gritty? Because that's what Paul is calling you to do. You know, during COVID, when we were on lockdown, you know, as I get older, I was like, I need to work out. So I bought a treadmill, put it together. I always had an excuse. Before, it's like, I don't want to pay for a gym. And I can't wake up early enough to go to 24-hour fitness or wherever to run on the treadmill. Then when we moved over to Bray, I was like, this is great. I'll just jog around the house on the sidewalk, you go outside. I did that maybe a handful of times in the past six years, but I realized one part of the block is a little bit of an incline, and I can't jog up an incline. So when COVID hit, let's buy a treadmill and use it every day. It's been about three years or so. I think I've used it about four times. There's not much effort there, and it reflects that. I'm not as healthy, not cardiovascularly, as vibrant as I wish I could be. I've run out of breath. Everything else in your life, I know that you work hard. You work hard to get ahead in life. You work hard in parenting. You work hard in your careers. You work hard in your studying. You work hard in your exercise. Don't let your salvation be the one thing that you don't work out. Because it's the same thing in some ways the way God designed the world. If you want to thrive, if you want to, if you want to work, if you want to be able to grow and you want to fly in your Christian life, Contemplate verses 5 to 11 and work out those truths in your everyday life. And that's how you become more like Jesus. But let's get more practical. Let's look at this in application of this. There's actually several applications in the rest of the verses, 14 to 18. But I'm going to focus on one. But before I focus on one, I'm just going to show you there's several that we could have touched upon. One of them, it says this, you want to work out your salvation? It's just really what I just said. Hold fast to the word of God, the word of life. Hold fast is a military term. It's a sense of urgency. No, stand fast when you're about to go into battle. It says, hold fast. You want to work out your salvation? Hold fast to the word of God. It doesn't say hold fast to power. It doesn't say hold fast to the Bible. It doesn't say hold fast to your prestige and power. You want to grow in Jesus? Hold fast to the word of God. The second application on the bottom, he actually says, rejoice. I rejoice for you. I want you to rejoice with me then there's a way to think, how do I rejoice in the gospel of Jesus because of our love for one another? Those are a couple applications. What I'm going to focus on is the first application. Paul here is pastoral. He's zeroing in on one specific issue. He begins actually working out your salvation with one application in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Isn't that funny? This heavenly, lofty theology of verses 5 to 11. And the first application that Paul goes into, he says, in everything that you do, do it without complaining. Do it without disputing and arguing and bickering. That's the first step for the Philippians to begin to work out their salvation. That's what he says. If you want to know how someone truly gets the lofty theology of verses 5 to 11, look at how much 
he or she complains or bickers. It's really black and white. You know, if you don't like the application, I respect that. I'm, I'm with you. This is hard. But it's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. So I just have a question. We're going to try to flesh this out a little bit. Are there any complainers in this room besides myself? Are there any people who, like, grumble because they feel like life doesn't go the way that they want? Well, I'm here to tell you that, on the one hand, if you do complain, it is a very deep sin, but at the same time, it's unfortunately a common sin because we live in a world of complainers. Paul calls this a world of complainers a crooked and twisted generation. We live in a world of grumblers. We are a world of complainers. Actually, there was a book called A Complaint-Free World written by Will Bowen, and in the first chapter, he entitled this, I Complain, Therefore I Am. And he quotes from this guy, this person, Lily Tomlin, who said, man invented language to satisfy his deep need to complain. So even these non-Christian authors and skeptics, they, they can resonate with the fact that humans have a natural tendency and proclivity and natural swing to complain, to grumble. It comes natural to us because of our sin and selfishness and self-centric nature. It's in a fallen world. Even the New York Times, there was an article written a handful of years ago called The Micro-Complaint, Nothing Too Small to Whine About. And in this article, it's really fascinating. It says, in our culture, it sort of made shifts in which in the previous generations, complaining was something that was a little bit embarrassing, so you only did it in a safe place with friends and family. It was private. But all of a sudden, with technology and social media and the shift in culture, complaining became much more public. We do it all the time on our Twitter account or Snapchat or Instagram. And in other words, he was saying in this article, some, in generations past, complaining was viewed and looked down upon. Now complaining is almost not just acceptable, but authentic and cool to complain publicly. And social media plays a big part of this because it's so easy just to kind of tweet out a complaint that you have. So then they develop this idea called the micro-complaint, and it's been normalized by all the celebrities that we try to follow. Now, these are a little bit dated, but... You know, one person wrote this. They confiscated Frankie's glitter spray at the airport. He's devastated. Ariana Grande talking about her brother-in-law. One actress, two irritating things this morning. The bread is moldy and there's only decaf coffee. That's Elizabeth Hurley. One person said this. I specifically ordered Persian rugs with cherub imagery. What in the world do I have to do to get a simple... Persian rug with cherub imagery and put this big, ah, that was Kanye West. And from this developed, because it's almost something that people found pride in, that there developed something called the humble complaint, which was the cousin of the humble brag. You know what the humble brag is? You know, we do this sometimes. Oh, I'm so thankful that I get to serve as a president of this new organization, or I'm so thankful that... You know, my, my daughter or son got a full scholarship at Harvard University. You know, it's a, it's a humble brag. But now there's a humble complaint to show the lifestyle that you have. I can't believe I had to wait one minute before I board my first class airplane ticket. <laughs> now, I can't believe that I was 10 minutes delayed as I go to my all-inclusive resort vacation. I can't believe that it's actually not sunny. It's a little bit misty when I visit London or Paris or Italy. The humble complaint, which is a form and cousin of the humble brag. See, this is the point. 
That's the culture we live in. So back then in the days of Philippi and today in the 21st century, Paul's commandment to work out your salvation is all the more telling when he says, in all things, do without grumbling and complaining. Because do you know on a counseling perspective what your grumbling and complaining says? At the heart of it, to make it really simple, whenever you grumble and you complain about something, what it basically says in your heart, I deserve better. And you think you merit it, you're good. But when the Bible speaks into this, it's saying, actually, everything in your life, the very breath that you breathe out, is all because of God's grace for you, procured by the death and resurrection of your son. The only reason you have any version of health, any family, any way to drive around, any job, anything that you have, is a measure of the grace of God given to you, procured and secured in the gospel of Jesus. Because what the Bible says, and it's really unpopular message for today, is saying that because of your rebellion and sin, you don't deserve anything except condemnation and go to hell. So anything that you have is an occasion to rejoice. Grumbling at the core, whenever you grumble, it just means that you're entitled, and it means that you're just saying in your heart, I deserve better. I'm meant for better. I am better. Now, Larry Osborne, in this book we church read years ago in Sticky Teams, in the church context, says people who complain, he labeled them squeaky wheels. Are you a squeaky wheel? Do you deserve better? in your own thinking, in your own heart. And so the question for us in terms of Christianity is this. Are we, as followers of Jesus, part of this culture of complaint? Or in the gospel, are we going to be a missionary light and a bright star to say, we're not going to go with the wave of the culture? The culture is one that has micro-complaints, the one that has a cousin of the humble brag. But I'm not going to do that because I have every reason in the gospel of Jesus, or verses 5 to 11, to celebrate, to love, to be thankful, and to realize that I'm so humbled that although life doesn't go the way that I want, I realize that's okay because I'm not the author of my life. God is. Let me give you a couple of just kind of caveats, just kind of flesh this out. There's a difference between grumbling and actually groaning and lamenting. In some ways, we're called to lament because we live in a world of pain and suffering. So you can groan. You can lament. That's very different from grumbling. Because a groan says, God, this is really hard, and I really want you. A grumble says, God, you're really hard, and I disagree with you. A groan and a lament that calls for justice and calls for peace and prosperity in the gospel of Jesus, a groan says, oh, Lord, I would like something different that reflects your holiness. But a grumble says, oh, Lord... I wish you were someone different. Grumbling distorts the past. It exaggerates the present. It places yourself as the center of the universe, and it dishonors God. So there's a difference between groaning and grumbling. There's also a difference between loving constructive criticism, but also someone who's just complaining. And a lot of it's about motivation and the way you deliver the message. But Paul here is talking about complaining. He's talking about grumbling and the... The challenge is, are you part of this culture that celebrates micro-complaints and complaining and grumbling? Or in the gospel of Jesus, are you going to be someone different because you follow Jesus who gives you every reason to be thankful and to be compassionate and gentle and to be gracious to the world around you that's broken and fallen? Here's Paul's solution for you. It's not to be part of the culture of complaint. 
is not actually not to, it's not just to suppress all the discomfort and sense of injustice that you have, but it's to be able to center all of this upon the person and work of Jesus so you could celebrate everything, so you could be a countercultural movement. And this is how I know, because if you didn't realize this, Paul in Philippians verses 14 to 15, he's actually referencing a very famous story. There's one famous story in all the Bible about a people who complained, and it's actually the church, the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Israel grumbled against Moses in Exodus 15. Moses called them the crooked and twisted generation in Deuteronomy 32. That's why Paul, he's taken these words and he's actually reimagining the picture of Israelites in the Exodus story as they're grumbling about the food, grumbling about the long journey of 40 years. And you know how the story grows because they crossed the Red Sea and the Israelites began to complain. First about water, then about food, and then about the meat, and then about no water. And every time God graciously answered them, what did the Israelites do? They didn't thank God, but they complained. Now, these people are complaining because they had no bread. And Jesus comes on into the scene, and I think Paul is taking this. Jesus in the gospel comes onto the scene, and he remembers, Israelites, you generations ago complained about no bread. And then Jesus comes on in a climactic way, says, you know what? I'm going to feed the 5,000 by giving them bread. And then in the Gospel of John chapter 6, what does he say to a grumbling nation and people like you and me? I am the bread of life. He says, you have every reason in me to be satisfied, every reason in me to celebrate and to glorify God because I am the bread of life. I will satisfy you. I'll give you every reason to be thankful and to rejoice. I feed the 5,000, but I'm going to feed the world on the death and resurrection of the cross. And if we could receive this, if you could soak it in, if you realize that Jesus was the only one who was able to live this life without complaining, but had every right to complain because he was the victim of the greatest act of injustice for dying for your sins and mine so that we could go to heaven. And he did this as the bread of life to satisfy you. He did this as a living water to satisfy your thirst. And when we embrace this, we find joy and contentment in Jesus, in Christ. We begin to respond to people, not by being oblivious to the hurts and pains, but to recognize we're not the center of the universe, and in our hearts we're so satisfied with the bread of life and the living water that we have every reason to transcend the Israelites in the book of Exodus who complained for 40 years, and we could transcend that circumstance because we have received the bread of life and the living water of Jesus. And that's why Paul says, you want to work out your salvation? You have every reason to celebrate, to rejoice, and to be thankful. Don't grumble and complain. But in verse 15, he basically says, shine like lights in the world. That word there for lights is actually the word for stars. He's saying in the bleak, black backdrop of a world of complainers, shine like stars. The NIV captures this and says, you will shine like stars in the universe. You know how? By simply not complaining. In the deep black backdrop of a complaining culture, we will stand out like sparkling stars in a midnight sky. Do you ever think about that? If you think about Orange County, it's a wonderful place to live. Orange County has the best weather. Orange County has vibrant communities and diverse communities. I feel like they're on the cutting edge of the housing community, because they come up with houses that really bring together a wonderful home with bright lights as well as integrating the outside backyard. There's all kinds of different foods. You can go skiing. You could go to the beach. You could also go on the snow in the mountains. 
Orange County has vibrant diversity, different kinds of foods. Everyone's happy. It's an upper middle class culture for the most part. How in the world are you supposed to be a shining light in a place like Orange County that's diverse, vibrant, and has so much culture and diversity? How? In all things, do not grumble or complain. Can you imagine that? An Orange County culture that doesn't complain or grumble? One pastor, John Yanchko, said this, people who deal with their grumbling and complaining will become a missionary power in a world of complainers. And that might be you and me. A missionary power in a world of complainers. Because as that old children's song goes, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. That's all I remember. But in a culture of complaint, the non-believers and skeptics look at people like you and me who don't complain in a world, in a wave, of, in a culture of complaining, but we don't, and we're thankful, and we celebrate the goodness of Jesus. They may say that in a silly way. How I wonder what you are. Why are you like that? How are you able to be like that? And that's because we reflect the light and the glory of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the star of the universe, the bright light of the glory of the kingdom of God. And right now you reflect that by your love and joy for him and not complaining and grumbling about the circumstances of your life. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord God, because you sent Jesus, who is the bread of life, who saved us, satisfied us, encouraged us, built us, is our foundation. And we pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would grow to understand more deeply, verses 5 to 11, of all that Jesus has done for us in his glorious heavenly truth, power, majesty, and kingdom, and that we could reflect this slowly but surely as we work out our salvation by your grace and power. Thank you, God, so much for that truth and for that privilege and that ability to do that in the gospel of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.